When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, after a meek defeat to Brighton, our Manchester United headed towards the post-Jose Mourinho era. We assess Manchester City's new Amazon-produced documentary All or Nothing and ask if it's a full and balanced account of City's epic season. And we assess the title credentials of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool and Maurizio Sarri's Chelsea as both get off to blockbusting Premier League starts. Okay, Duncan, at our at Transfer Podcast account earlier, I posed the question, what are you looking to hear us talk about today? And the vast majority of people came back with questions about Manchester United. Here's the thing. A lot of people are talking about the post-Jose Marino era. What's going on with that? I think um, what's going on is people are responding to... um, a narrative that has gone on in public discussion of Manchester United for, well, two years now. Certainly for this is the second season of it, which is um, how long will it take for things to go wrong for Jose Mourinho at Manchester United? Um, all the, the third season syndrome, as it's described, um, and the, and the, the desire um, for lots of people to, to see the project fail um, and to see Jose Mourinho lose his job at, at Manchester United. Um, we're two games into the season. Uh, the performance at Brighton was appalling. Um, but uh, take it into context, uh, two games into a season where they haven't had a, a proper um, pre-season uh, preparation, still several players unfit or not fully fit, ready to play. Um, and the, and the key context of um, not having been provided with the players he asked for in the transfer window, um, having to to play with a defence um, still comprised of Luke Shaw um, and two uh, relatively inexperienced uh, centre backs. Um, looking at the the starts that uh, Victor Lindelof and Eric Bailly had made. Um, in the Premier League going into that match. They had 50 Premier League starts between them, not all of them at centre-back. And then um, Ashley Young at, at right-back, a um, position he hasn't played for um, or hasn't played for any succession of time for a while. Again, a player coming just back from the World Cup. Um, and uh, and they have defensive problems. It's probably not a surprise they have the p- defensive problems as the, all of those positions were once identified by Mourinho as uh, key areas to strengthen in the summer. Only one of them was strengthened with a, a young uh, player with a huge amount of potential, but who's not fit to play yet. Um, and you get a bad result. Um, the One of the discussions about it is, well, Jose Mourinho signed both of those centre-backs. If he can't get them to play well, then it's his responsibility and why should the board give him money to sign a new centre-back? Well, there's, you know, there's, you can see the logic in that argument, but if you step away and look at what he had asked for, what he got, in both occasions he bought uh, players who he thought could develop, be developed alongside better centre-backs into top players. Neither of them were considered, uh, were brought in to immediately be starting centre-backs. Um, and if you compare spending, you know, the, 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 
the discussion is oh, he spent 60 million pounds on, on two centre backs and they're not good enough. Well, 60 million pounds on two centre backs, what did uh, Manchester City spend on effectively a reserve centre back for the second half of last season? 70 million euros, an Imeric report. What did Liverpool spend? to improve their central defence uh, midway through last season, 75 million on Virgil van Dijk. There's a comparison, I think. If you want um, a top-class centre-back in the current market, that's the kind of money you have to spend. So 60 million on two is like saying, well, we, we'll, we'll go for two not fully ready options and hope they, we can develop them into fully ready, ready options when you know that Manchester United's defence hasn't been good enough for several years. Um, is it a surprise that in certain games you get problems because you haven't bought the, the, the correct players? I don't think so. One of the problems in, in, in all of this um, for me is that Mourinho is very easily painted as the pantomime villain, um, especially in <clears throat> some sections of the media. There is a desire for Mourinho to fail um, because of his history of success, ironically. And also because um, he is not always the charming um, person who makes the joke or uh, wants to play ball. I mean, let's face it, Arsene Wenger went, what, 11 years without winning a title at Arsenal, but still got a brilliant press. Um, Liverpool have gone 28 years without winning uh, a, a top-flight title, and yet managers like Rafa Benitez and, and Jurgen Klopp have had wonderful press as well, um, mainly because they I guess portrayed as you know not underdogs as such, but the challengers rather than the champions. And Manchester United are a, a, a club with a history of winning championships, and therefore it's expected. It's not just hoped for; it is expected. And Mourinho's now in his third season. Um, they came second last year. Uh, they were somewhere behind City, obviously, and but he is expected to deliver a championship title this season against a Manchester City squad, which is. I think plainly has better quality and depth to it than his squad. And in circumstances whereby you have interference from people above Mourinho who don't know anything about football or know very little. You've got a, you know, an executive vice chairman, Edward Wood, who's a former investment banker, making decisions about why a player is not worth the money which is being asked in the current market. Based on purely financial and uh, logistical uh, reasons. In this case, I would quote Toby Alderweireld, who was available to Manchester United the day before the transfer window closed. But at 29, it was considered the £65 million that Tottenham were asking for him. He was not a good investment. Now, what is a good investment in football? A good investment is, in football terms, a player who betters your squad and who makes you a more viable contender to win trophies. What's a good investment in money terms? Well, quite clearly, that's the way Manchester United are thinking. And that is a good investment in money terms as a player who will return you money in the transfer market. And at 29, Alderweireld was not considered to be someone who would do that. And as Duncan pointed out, Bay and Lindelof are both young players who will, can and have the potential to develop into very good, potentially world-class players who will return an investment from Manchester United. So I think the question is quite clear. Are Manchester United a football club who want to win in football or are they becoming or have they already become simply a company which is set up to make money for their owners? And the fans will not accept the latter, but the manager is being forced to try and in some way modulate and, and cope with the desire for both to win trophies and for the company to make money. I think I think in that there's a very interesting comment from Ed Woodward um, to Manchester United shareholders uh, earlier this year um, when he was asked, I think, about uh, how performance on the field impacts the commercial success of the club. And what he said was playing performance doesn't really have a meaningful impact on what we can do on the commercial side of the business. So that's the... the the chief executive of the company saying uh, the bottom when it comes to the bottom line of the company which is what his um, success and what his position is based upon what his future employment is based upon 
playing performance is essentially irrelevant. Now, if you have the chief executive of the company saying that in a shareholders meeting, um, I think it's a fair assumption to say that affects his thinking when it comes to um, uh, the manager saying, I need a top-class centre-back or I need a right-winger um, to change the squad so we have a chance of winning the Premier League. And to do that, that's going to cost you know, perhaps an extra £100 million pounds in transfer fees or what you are prepared to invest this summer. Remember, this summer they invested €77 million Euros in transfer fees. They bought one experienced starting uh, footballer. And, and if that is in the chief executive's head, that actually it doesn't matter to the bottom line, to the most important thing when it comes to my survival with the, the, um, the guys who employ me, the directors and the, the family that owns this football club, then probably makes a there's a good chance he's making the decision saying, well, I'm not going to give you £100 because it doesn't matter whether you win the league or not. And the key phrase there, Duncan, is shareholders meeting. He's speaking to people who are only interested in the dividends and the profits that they will return from their investment. And there is a, not just a growing, but it's been uh, something which the riches that the Premier League brings in terms of mostly broadcasting <clears throat> revenues, etc., and marketing uh, revenues, sponsorship revenues over the past 25 years. They've grown and grown and grown exponentially. And that's why we have a plethora of investors in Premier League clubs, because at the end of the day, whatever happens on the pitch, they know they will make money from their investment. Um, look at the uproar from Arsenal fans when Stan Kroenke uh, announced that he was buying out Alisher Usmanov, who had always portrayed himself to be the champion of the fans, the guy who wanted to put money in uh, in a kind of a Bramovich-style way to make the club successful on the field. Um, and the first thing Kroenke did was remove the um, corporate status from the website so that uh, no longer did he need to publish uh, accounts or have shareholders meetings where he could be questioned face-to-face -face or his administrators um, <clears throat> from the fans who wanted to ask those hard questions about why we're not succeeding on the field. And a private company doesn't need to do that. And Manchester United effectively are exactly the same. But Manchester United is a club even greater than Arsenal in terms of its traditional history of being at the very elite side of the world game. And therefore, trophies are required. Now, compare that to clubs in La Liga where presidents um, like Florentino Perez and uh, at Barcelona, Bartomeu, are elected by um, members of the club who do have an influence and do need and absolutely demand success on the field. And you've got faceless corporates in, in England, by comparison, who see themselves simply as um, answerable to their shareholders. Now, that's not going to change anytime soon. But to get back to the football side of it, what Mourinho needs more than anything is there to be some kind of at least agreement about what he requires and what he needs to be given in terms of resources to make United competitive against Manchester City in particular, in order that, as a football person, he can continue to do the work that he sees needs to be done at Manchester United. And at this moment in time, there is clearly an impasse between the owners and the administrators of Manchester United and the manager of Manchester United, which didn't exist in Sir Alex Ferguson's time because he, uh, in Mourinho's own words of uh, 10 days ago, was absolutely the manager and not downgraded to head coach. I think, I think the comparison with Arsenal is, is very relevant because Arsenal are run in the same way that Manchester United are in the sense that it's an American who, or an American group, an American family who own the club purely for the financial uh, investment involved and for the, the, the uh, profits they can take. They see they bought into these clubs because they saw them as expanding businesses where there was a lot of money to be made either through year-on-year -year dividends or through selling the club down the line at, at uh, vastly increased um, valuation on the, on the total value of the share holding. They're not interested in the football. How often do we see the Glazers or the Cronkies at the football matches um, celebrating, enjoy, enjoying the games, uh, desperate to see their teams succeed? It's, it's not relevant to them. Essentially, the bottom line is the thing that they're involved in the club for. Contrast that with Manchester City, 
where it's not there's a there is a business element in the background but the business element is very much in the background the club was bought for pr and political purposes by abu dhabi and abu dhabi want that symbol of their nation to succeed by winning the premier league which they've done three times now and winning the champions league so the project is designed around what is achieved on the football pitch therefore they invest in the team in a way that no other country no other individual has ever done in the history of football because they want to see that team succeed and if you you know track it several years down the line you see that the end result of that and that the team that the club that is investing with football as a priority with succeeding on the football pitch as a priority in the context of the modern game where the where the money involved is greater than ever and the costs of recruiting players and retaining players are higher than ever and are prepared to pay those costs, they're the team that succeed. And, and that really shouldn't be a surprise because the ownership and the manager and the players are on the same page. Duncan, that point was um, summed up beautifully um, by the differences uh, on either side of the director's box at the Amex Stadium last Sunday. On one side, you had seven members of the Manchester United PLC stroke football board. <clears throat> Neither Sir Bobby Charles or Alex Ferguson were there for their own reasons. The Glazers weren't there. Ed Woodward was there along with several of the other executive directors, including financial etc. etc. So they were on one side, and on the other side was Tony Bloom, who's invested around three hundred and fifty million pounds of his own money into his club, building a stadium, training ground, investing in the team, players' wages infrastructure, etc., etc. <clears throat> and when Brighton went 2-0 up, that left-hand side of the, the director's box was overcome with members of the Bloom family, including Tony's parents, Ronnie and Wendy, in their 70s and 80s, because that club has been their life, and Tony has invested because it is his life. It's his, his lifelong love for Brighton Hove Albion Football Club. His brother, the wives, the children were all there, yeah? When Lukaku scored... There was a small round of applause in the right-hand side of that director's box from the executive board of Manchester United. And when you talk about the desire to succeed, the passion, the investment, more than just the financial investment, the emotional investment, then it was all summed up in the director's box at the Amex last Sunday. And you can see what it means uh, in terms of, the, the, as I said, the emotional investment of people who want their football club to succeed. And those two clubs, of course, are on a very, very different tier in terms of um, their position in English and world football. But I don't know which one I would choose to be my chairman and my owner if I had that choice. Yeah, and you, you bring all this back to, to where the, the, the question that Johnny started with, with, which is Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho has had this suspicion about Manchester United for a significant length of time. He knows that the club has financial resources beyond any club he's ever been employed by. And when it comes as a question of investing in players, it's not about the finances being there. He knows the finances are there to do what is necessary in the transfer market. The question he's had is whether the club is happy to be contending for the title, to be up and around the top teams in the Premier League and qualifying for the Champions League each year because that's commercially very important to them, and that's enough. Or whether they want to go the extra extra stage, use their financial resources to take on the club that spent more um, in its football squad than any team ever, and and that question's not being answered in a positive way from this this summer's transfer window in particular. Can I, can I make one last point on this, Johnny, as well? But I know we're going to be moving on soon. <clears throat> It, it, going back to the whole investment thing, it, it was pointed out to me yesterday that Manchester United's stock price had risen by 4.41%. And um, it also, uh, when I was looking at that, um, their market capitalisation, according to the stock exchange, currently runs just under £1 billion. Um, when Stan Kronka uh, managed to buy, well, managed to, but negotiated to buy the rest of Usmanov's shares, the market price, not capitalization, because that's based purely on assets, um, 
So, but the market price, if you want to buy, is the is the is the realistic. Arsenal were valued at one point eight billion. So, in which case, Manchester must be valued around two billion pounds. So, the, the difference between the market cap and the market price, two different things. But the point being that neither Arsenal or Manchester have won the title in the last what three or four years, and yet they still are the most valuable clubs in England and in the world. So, when it comes down to it, this is about money. It's not about trophies. Well, from one side of Manchester to the other, it may be a little stormy at Old Trafford, but things are certainly looking happy and dreamy at Manchester City if the Amazon documentary All or Nothing is anything to go by. Ian, what was your reaction to the eight-part documentary series that's just dropped? Uh, I'd say it was compelling viewing, Johnny. Um, I enjoyed watching lots of it because it's the kind of access that, as a journalist, you, you dream of getting and to be quite honest with you uh, you know I've made documentaries myself uh, for broadcasting and uh, if it was me then I would be you know absolutely elated uh, to get that kind of fly on the wall um, documentary access as well however I, I, I don't believe it's an accurate representation necessarily of the season and for instance if City hadn't won the league w- would it have been eight part would it have been quite as uh, celebratory and complimentary would it even have come out if City hadn't won the league because I'm pretty sure in there there were a lot of legal uh, sort of caveats with regards to um, what the editorial content was and if or when or not it should be actually produced in itself um, based on the circumstances of how City season went so it should be a... pointed out that Man City have said that they, they took no editorial interest beyond legal legal yeah. matters. <clears throat> well, uh, I think that that phrase "beyond legal matters" is a is a coverall. Um, I myself have had situations where I've done interviews with football players or managers where the um, agents and representatives of so-called players and managers have insisted on editorial control. Now. Uh, thankfully, I worked at newspapers um, where we did not give editorial control to anyone, and therefore there was a kind of negotiation process whereby headlines, pictures, and copy, and everything else was then, you know, uh, it was a, a it was a matter of agreement rather than simply a matter of aren't we all brilliant? This is great, which kind of is, you know, what all or nothing uh, came across as. Uh, I think, as I said, the, the swearing of Pep and the, the, the pre-match, post-match, half-time stroke um, segments were, I think, enthralling um, in, in some cases, but not necessarily representative because I don't remember seeing very much in terms of the negative in there. And there were negative parts of Manchester City's season. So um, I think what uh, the furore that was caused in terms of um, Jose Mourinho saying it was disrespectful to them in terms of the um, the incidents following the uh, Derby win at the Etihad, where City failed to win the title, um, I think were justified, Duncan. Well, I, I, yeah, I think I think um, I think Mourinho was correct in saying you can have a great movie without being disrespectful to your opponents. I think he's you know he's right because um, the access, as you say, is unprecedented. Um, I think it's something anyone interested in football would want to watch. There is, there's so much detail in there. There's so many fascinating insights into the way the players, the coach, um, the executives of the club operate in there. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of treasure trove of little vignettes. There's you know details of one of the one of the parts that struck me was Guardiola. Um, throwing V signs at his players when they were 16 points ahead, saying, you know, uh, to them, you're, you're telling me we are tired, um, uh, expletive you, again and again. I could have um, beat that, Duncan. You could have just said it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say it next time. Yeah, a good Dundee lad. Your mum will be proud. <laughs> um, I, I thought that was fascinating in the context of stuff that you hear about um, uh, coaches going in after Pep Guardiola to Bayern Munich. I know Carlo Ancelotti, um, when he arrived at, as Bayern Munich 
coach uh, was very aware that the, the team he inherited was mentally and physically exhausted by three years of being coached by Guardiola. And I think you can see from some of the elements of the stuff that was shown in the programme where that exhaustion can come. So that's fascinating. Uh, you know, little details like Mikel Arteta um, instructing Cunaguero uh, and David Silva to foul Chelsea immediately on the transition um, uh, when they were playing them in the latter half of the season when they basically already had the, the Premier League title win. One, but that kind of stuff. The, the, the tactical instructions Guardiola was giving his, his teams during the game and ways of solving problems in matches, all of that brilliant. Um, what I found disappointing, I think, is you know the, the premise that Manchester City have given is that this they kind of distanced themselves from the disrespectful stuff and anything that, that was ill-received by saying it wasn't their responsibility what went in the final cut. I mean, Guardiola said that on record in a press conference. And, the, and their official line has been that they only controlled legal and commercial matters. If that's the case, if Amazon had an absolute clean sheet, if you like, with the kind of access they had, then I'm disappointed in, in the stuff they left out. Uh, for me, if you want to tell the story of that season, you've got to say um, what happened in the Champions League game when they got knocked out. Much of that documentary is about uh, we are going to prove, you've got Guardiola multiple times saying we are the best team in the world. I want you to go out and demonstrate you're the best team in the world. The only difference is in, in belief, um, in arrogance. It's not about the way you play. I know you play well. But when it came down to it, they fell apart in the Liverpool game. And uh, my analysis of that game, and I think the analysis of, of most people who um, look at football in detail, is that Guardiola made a huge tactical mistake and changing his lineup um, for that first leg at Anfield. We discussed it in, in detail, Transfer Window podcast at the time. Um, they, Amazon had the access to show us exactly what he, he did before that game and exactly what the response of the players was after the game and what his response was after the game. There was nothing, zero presentation of that, nothing on it before, after, Second, uh, or in, and in the, when they went into the second leg, the commentary was about um, once again City frustrated by uh, controversial refereeing decisions, bad luck, and uh, poor finishing. And it, 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 those elements to me came across like it was a very expensive club documentary of the season rather than a piece of journalism properly analysing what's great about Pep Guardiola, why he created this um, beautiful team to watch, why, why that football we saw was, came about and where it went wrong. And that, that to me, moved it more into, into hagiography and, and a kind of, it, it had the feel of something where they wanted to keep the club happy rather than using the unprecedented access they had to go all the way and tell us everything they could have about Manchester City's season. As I said, Johnny, those, those legal reasons have a very coverall feel about them. And, and Duncan's correct. If it was an objective piece of journalism, then there would have been an, at least an explanation for why Manchester City failed to beat Liverpool uh, and progress the Champions League uh, final last season. Um, so for all of the, um, you know, the, the, denials or indeed the proclamations of Manchester City that they had no editorial control and everything else. I think the content itself um, has to be doubted for that reason. And I would use another example um, of this kind of editorial control uh, to just even things up, if you like, and that is that in his first autobiography, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson dev devoted, I think, 37 words to the most controversial and negative aspect of his time at Manchester United over the Rock of Gibraltar horse ownership affair with the then uh, investors in United and uh, said effectively nothing whatsoever. Um, and that tells you everything about editorial control and how the, the person who wants to portray themselves or the club who want to portray themselves as being only in the best light get the opportunity to do that. Um, so, look, I think we should encourage 
these kind of um, projects because, uh, as Duncan pointed out, the fine detail and the access was incredible. And it does give you a wonderful insight, the kind of thing that normally you only get if you're someone very close to the manager or a top player um, at a club. And then you can then have the opportunity to get the chance to write or to make a, a broadcast documentary, which um, explicates uh, both the modus operandi of that person, but also um, that fine detail about where games are won and lost, where tactics actually produce the right or the wrong aspect um, of a result, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, in terms of it being, you know, a coverall and a, a, a no uh, sort of all warts or anything, I don't think that's the case. Um, to throw this forward, um, I think obviously Manchester City's start to their title defence has been, you know, very very positive. Obviously, um, and as a result of that being the case, as a result of the documentary coming out in the way that it has then they've had brilliant press over the last um, three, four weeks. And indeed, um, watching Sky Sports Monday Night Football, uh, I saw Jamie Carricker and Gary Neville absolutely extol the virtues of David Silva, Conaguero, Vincent Company, um, talking about Silva as a Premier League legend, etc., etc., which I'm not debating. But I guess my point is, this is similar to the one I made earlier in the segment when we talked about Manchester United. City are a good news story. People want Pep Guardiola to, to succeed because he seems to be a good bloke. Um, he's a nice guy, even when... You manic know, he was... energy. That's one of the things that came across in the documentary was that he was he's a bit of a mad professor character. Oh, definitely, Johnny. You talk to anyone at Barcelona where he spent his longest spell as coach and obviously his first spell as coach. Um, one of those players... Uh, I was privileged to to, to be out uh, on a night out with um, after a Barcelona Real Madrid game. Said to me that that Pep was a, a conundrum that he couldn't solve. He said that he would, in the morning, he would take training and he would be amazingly bright and positive. And he was this guy. I was like, "Come on, everyone, we can do this," etc. Et and then they would uh, go for a tactical meeting in the afternoon, and something had changed in him, and he suddenly became a dark person. Somebody was negative, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think there is light and dark to all of us, and certainly in the geniuses of this world, whether it be Pep Guardiola or, or Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, there is light and dark, and it needs both of those to um, you know, to fuel that kind of genius. I think we saw a little bit of the dark in Guardiola in the documentary, but it was mostly the light. Again, that's fine, and that's part of the process of that kind of project because they don't want to be negative. But it would be more fascinating, absolutely intriguing, if we got access to those dark moments as well, where he is 3-1 down to Liverpool and he's thinking, how the hell do I solve this? Because not everyone's brave enough to wear that in public. And if Guardiola was, I think we would all know more about him than we do today. Yeah, it's like legal and commercial it covers everything at a football club these days. If you say we, we only censor for commercial reasons, everything at a big football club like Manchester City is commercially sensitive these days. And I, I haven't managed to watch all the episodes. I think I've watched three quarters of the of the the, the documentary, total documentary so far. Um, but as I can recall, and, and I'll be surprised if it appears anywhere, there not once does Ben Kingsley um, do Amazon mention that Guardiola was working with the most expensive football squad in history and that more money had been spent in two years um, under Guardiola than for, by any club ever um, in, that, in a similar period. Um, so, you know, all or, if it's all or nothing, it's either all or it's not, or to put it in Guardiola's um, phrasing, if you want to be top, you've got to score the f goals. And I don't think Amazon scored the goals there. Beautifully put. <laughs> From the, the Dundonian. Absolutely sensational. <laughs> Spoken like a true Bob servant. <laughs> I'm just going to make a note to myself to edit that. You wanted to use your feedback? <laughs> yeah. You can edit all you like, Johnny. I'll be quoting it verbatim on Twitter later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did that cajole you into it, didn't I? Really? Okay, right, moving on, we're going to look at uh, Liverpool, who of course uh, had a pretty rudimentary 2-0 win over Crystal Palace uh, last night. Guys, do we feel that Liverpool are looking 
strong title contenders at this stage. I know a lot of pundits are have certainly placed them in that position. And does that begin to put a level of pressure on Jurgen Klopp that he hasn't encountered so far in his Liverpool career? I don't. I don't think it was a rudimentary win, Johnny. I think you're being unfair to him. I think that was that was a tough game last night um, that they got through, um, that they won, where you could easily have seen uh, the Liverpool team of last season or previous season dropping points there. Um, they, you know, they they made the most of their opportunities, but more more importantly, I think you saw guys like Alison Becker doing everything required in difficult situations um, and making making what could have been goals for Crystal Palace seem like relatively straightforward saves. You know, holding the ball when, it, when, when shots come in tight and it's easier to spill it or knocking one out of the top corner, being very good um, with, with the ball on the deck. It, you know, th- there's an obvious improvement in a, in a key area there. So I think that is, that's a big win for them. And I, I think they'll, they'll, take, um, they'll take a lot of uh, confidence from being able to go to a place like Crystal Palace, which is notoriously one of the hardest of grounds to play in the Premier League, um, and, and get a 2-0 result. Um, and I think that tells you that they have, that they have to be considered title challengers if they can if they can get those performances what we need to see and the question you know will still be how do they perform when teams set up against them um, with better players in a way that they don't like that then we need to see um, we can see that the defense has improved we've got to see if the attack has improved when they're posed the kind of problems that cost them a lot of points in the Premier League to to mediocre sides last season and uh, and problems they weren't able to solve when you know clubs with better players such as Manchester United refused to to go and attack them and you know going back to the documentary uh, there was some interesting insight into how um, Guardiola tried to play Liverpool last season in the game he lost in Anfield. Um, they did show you the half-time team talk in the league match, and in that half-time team talk, he was saying, "It's fine, keep playing the way you want to play." He was actually instructing his players to be braver and go up and press Liverpool in their own half. And we know what happened: Liverpool scored three goals um, very quickly in the second half of that game, and and, they, and th- that was the first Premier League win, uh, first Premier League defeat for City in the season. But that. I think that tell that told you what we already knew is if you play Liverpool the way that you, they want you to play them, they'll beat you. What we need to find out is if you play Liverpool the way Jurgen Klopp doesn't want you to play them, with the new resources they've got, they've got far better players in certain positions. Are they now able to win enough of those games to take the title? Speaking purely from a performance and tactical um, point of view on last night's game, Johnny, um, I thought Liverpool looked very much the same kind of team as they were last season. Patient on the ball, happy to have possession in the middle third, uh, not willing to risk the ball in too many um, situations which might transition play quickly to the the opposing team. Um, But they had a steeliness, a resolve about them, which hasn't always been the case at these more difficult, let's just say, lesser club grounds and they've been criticised for for only playing in big games or, or winning big games and, and not um, converting dominance uh, into results in, in lesser games. So it was impressive um, from that point of view. But what I noticed very, very um, obviously from the weekend's games, and uh, anyone who saw uh, Chelsea's uh, match against Arsenal will have seen a different tactical approach from, from Mertz and Sarri um, where um, he he's playing a lot more direct, so you're getting much more 30, 40-yard balls. And again, I go back to that point of risking possession, which is a big thing in terms of your statistics and your analysis now. But there were a lot more um, direct balls of playing between 30, 40 yards into the channels for the forwards, for William, Pedro, Morata to run onto, and then laterally Hazard as well. And what happened was they created a lot more goal chances than they did under Conte. And it was, you know... Interesting, but obviously very easy for someone like Morata to say, oh, if Conte had stayed, then I'd have to have gone because I didn't you know, agree with his style of play. 
what he's actually saying is, oh, we've won two matches and I'm getting a lot more goal chances and stuff. I'm enjoying my football a lot more. And that's normal for any footballer to do that, especially a striker. But um, conversely, Liverpool <clears throat> are not doing that. They're still putting on the counter. And both um, the uh, situation which, which led to the sending off um, last night at Crystal Palace and for Salah one-on-one uh, -on -one, and then obviously the, the second goal in added time were classic Liverpool counter-attacks where the opposing team were either um, uh, operating a set piece or committed players forward and what Liverpool do is break at great pace against you and then create those chances. So different ways of actually playing and I think that's going to be intriguing for all of us as the season goes on to see if Liverpool actually adapt because last season it was very obvious that Klopp has no plan B, that they always play the same way and that's how they, they, they finish so many points behind Manchester City. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's more difficult to say it's how they lost the Champions League final because I always think we all know the reason for that and he's not appreciated us. But um, the the difference in, in um, approach, I think, between Sarri's Chelsea and the let's just stick with how we know to play of Klopp, I think is going to be one of the factors of the season. And despite James Milner, who everyone, of course, the Transfer Podcast knows, is one of my favourite people of all time, um, saying, and also Klopp, that we're not title contenders, we don't want to hear that kind of chat because we're still so far behind everything else. That's nonsense. You know, you spent £52 million on a goalkeeper, uh, brought in Naby Keita, Fabinho, um, Van Dijk has only played seven or eight months now at Liverpool and yet I see Jimmy Carragher talking about it in terms of being a Liverpool legend and I think that's just way, way ahead of any kind of realistic status that Van Dijk can claim. He was outstanding last night, no doubt about that but he's got a lot to prove before he, he's a Jimmy Carragher, let's put it that way. So um, I think it's been a really interesting season um, for Liverpool because yes they are seen as the main contenders to Manchester City and yet uh, in my opinion, they're still way behind. Um, so how they play, um, especially against um, a team of Brighton's calibre next Saturday at Anfield, you know, with Glenn Murray in the form he's in, that's going to be that's going to be the big test for them, I think. Duncan, do you get the sense that if they are going to evolve, Naby Keita is going to be at the heart of that evolution? I think he, he clearly adds something to the midfield. Um, that I, they didn't have a great midfield last season. Um, and he is uh, he's dynamic um, and very very good in the ball um, you know almost uh, set up a, a goal from the edge of his own penalty box with, with one um, one little feint to, to lose a marker uh, and sprint beyond him and then a 50 yard pass uh, to Salah I think it might be Manny um, in the first half was that, that having that weapon in your team is worth a good number of goals in the season. Um, I can understand why Klopp wants to downplay the title stuff because um, the sense of expectation in the country in general is high. I think the sense of expectation in Liverpool is immense and um, the deflation that will be involved if they don't achieve the title this season is going to be something that Klopp could find difficult um, to handle because remember he's won nothing so far at Liverpool. Um, he can get away with not winning the title this season if uh, he gets some kind of silverware, but if they, you know, if they don't have a good title challenge, um, when with that expectation built up through the summer and, and at the start of the season. And, you know, things like De Bruyne getting injured for Manchester City seems to present an opportunity for Liverpool now. Then he's going he's to have to come out the other side of it. And so, you know, from a managerial perspective, it makes sense for him to, to downplay the, the, the title challenge. But you wonder where it's going to come from if it's not going to come from Liverpool, because I don't see uh, Sarri's Chelsea as title contenders, the way they played against Arsenal. Um, I think defensively, they were appalling. Um, uh, I watched that game in detail. Arsenal could have scored four goals in the first half. I mean, they had two two misses from nine yards, open goal misses from nine yards, another open goal miss from six yards. Um, scored two anyway. Um, and 
the you know Marcus Alonso does not look happy at left back. Cesar Aspalaqueta looks like he's forgotten how to play as a as a right back um, in in that system. Um, Jorginho is a brilliant addition in terms of uh, the, the creativity and fluidity of the midfield. I can totally understand why Sari wants him in that that position at the the point of the midfield just in front of the defence, collecting the ball from the defence and starting the attacks, because it, it clearly works offensively. But from a defensive perspective, I thought there were big questions to be asked. And, and you've got to remember that by Sari putting Jorginho there, because it works for him from an attacking perspective, he's moving in Golo Kante from a position that he's arguably one of the best in the world at and asking him to use his 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 the quality and his energy in the ball as a box to box player rather than than as a guy who protects the defence and I don't think the defence is ready to lose that protection and I'm not sure Kante for all his qualities has got um, the ability in the opposition penalty box or around the opposition penalty box to be at the, you know at the same level as a as a box to box midfielder so I I really don't see Chelsea as as contenders with the with the squad they have and, and certainly if Sarri's going to stick with that system and there's no suggestion he won't because that's that's very much the way he's played at Napoli and the way he's uh, he's made his reputation um, and Manchester United uh, as we've talked about significant problems and we we didn't mention the the Paul Pogba. Um, and uh, the Mino Raiola's latest um, involvement in, in that, you were you were saying, Ian, he's, uh, he's now suggesting that Paul Scholes should be a director of football at, at Manchester United. <laughs> so I'll read the actual tweets, guys, from Mino Raiola. Um, the first one, Paul Scholes should become sports director and advise Woodward to sell Pogba. Would be sleepless nights to find Pogba a new club. Bit of irony there from Mino, very good. And the second one was, uh, some people need to talk for fear of being forgotten. Paul Scholes wouldn't recognise a leader if he was in front of Sir Winston Churchill. Interesting. Um, well, as we know, Mino's not one to uh, hold his tongue when it comes to um, responding to people. And uh, to be fair, Paul Scholes, for the entirety of his playing career, where I was um, privileged enough both to watch him in the field and then not to interview him because he was the most <laughs> shy guy in the world, uh, off the pitch, uh, he never said boo to a goose. So the fact that Scholes has become one of the most outspoken critics of uh, Manchester United in the post-Ferguson era has been interesting for, for many of us in the journalistic profession. Um, Scholes, I think quite rightly, uh, has earned his position to be a critic, though. I think, you know, he's won many more trophies than Paul Pogba or indeed all of Mina Raiola's clients put together. So um, I wouldn't in any way um, uh, say that Scholes is wrong to criticise or indeed give his opinion on Pogba. Um, as we discussed last week on the Transfer Window podcast, Raiola's been trying to sell and probably continues to try to sell Pogba until um, the last day of every transfer window in the world. Um, but my certain information is that Pogba's going nowhere. And indeed, I think Pogba was uh, showed himself to be of at least potential leadership quality when he came out after the game and did what was a, an interview reminiscent of the great Roy Keane um, in taking responsibility for his own poor performance. 26 times he gave the ball away at the Amex on Sunday, which is almost unprecedented for Pogba. But he took responsibility for that and took responsibility to speak on behalf of the team and say our attitude wasn't good enough. Now, if you're a Manchester United fan, if you're Jose Mourinho, then actually, as disappointing as all that is, to hear your captain step up to the plate, take responsibility and take responsibility for his teammates as well and, and be honest about it, I think that's refreshing and encouraging and it bodes well for Pogba as captain or leader of Manchester United for the rest of the season um, and I think he's a more natural leader than Antonio Valencia who only got the armband because he's the longest serving player. Okay, well I feel like we might be stepping on the ground of the uh, quickfire round here because of course... The quickfire round this week is inspired by the bold Mino. We are going to look at Manchester United stars past and present and ask whether or not they are leaders or losers. Duncan, I'm going to start with you and give you Paul Pogba. 
<laughs> well, look, I, I think I agree with Ian there. I think um, I think it was a positive uh, in general on after the Brighton game in that Mourinho refused to criticise his players and then Pogba came out and criticised himself and the players. Uh, and I think that's a positive sign for the manager and the squad that it worked that way post-match. Um, is he a loser or a leader? Um, I think he, he can become a leader and he's showing he can become a leader. And I think the, the challenge for uh, Jose Mourinho, I think the challenge for Didier Deschamps, I think the challenge for any manager who has Pogba in the future, I think the challenge also for Mino Raiola is to ensure he becomes the leader he can be, you know, with the, the, the physical and technical qualities he has. Um, to get the best out of him as a footballer is the challenge for the people around him. And as we discussed previously, um, possibly some of the people around him aren't doing all they can to ensure um, that he becomes the best he can be. And maybe, you know, might want to reconsider that comment about sleepless nights to find a Pogba new club um, in retrospect uh, of what it might do for his career. We, we know Raiola wants to, wants to move him and, and to make money from another transfer. Perhaps he needs to just think uh, it would be better for him to stay in one club where he now has the captaincy, uh, where he has now the opportunity to prove himself to be the, the leader of the team to make the most of it, to take it and to further his career that way. So leader or loser, Duncan? Leader. Okay, Ian, you know I love you and I'm giving you an easy one because I love you. Roy Keane. Merci, Jonathan. Uh, I would say to keep with the Pogba's, uh, the Pog's French um, heritage and language, the denouement of Roy Keane's <laughs> Manchester career came when he absolutely slaughtered every single player on Manchester United television. And then Fergie played it to the players. And then, of course, that led to his departure. That's how much he cared. That's how much of a leader he is. But for me, I was in the old Stadio delle Alpi at the Juventus semi-final Champions League 1999 when Manchester United went 2-0 down in the second leg. Um, and Keane who knew if he got a yellow card would be suspended for the final in Barcelona, which would be played against Bayern Munich, and we all know what happened there, um, took one for the team and stopped a potential goal-scoring opportunity by taking the yellow card. And at 2-0 down, scored and dragged Manchester United almost single-handedly into the final, knowing that he himself would not be able to play. And, of course, Scholes also was suspended for the same... Uh, in the same game and, and suspended for that game as well. So it has a link to Scolese as well. But in terms of selfless, sacrificing himself and his own personal attempts, and remember, he never won the Champions League as a result. And in fact, as I remember, gave away the winner's medal that he, he received for the 1999 final. I think Keane is the ultimate example of leader and not loser. Ipswich Town fans will be screaming hagiography hey, and wondering why you didn't mention his managerial spell. <laughs> well, but Sunderland. You well, know, I thought it, was a, it was a mixed bag, Sunderland, wasn't it? He did well at first. Oh, okay, then. <laughs> As you say, Johnny. <laughs> which, which, tell, which tells you why leaders on the pitch aren't necessarily leaders as managers. Absolutely correct. Yeah. So many people in football that the things translate in a straightforward and direct fashion. Duncan, Jim Leighton. <laughs> Is this in the context of Manchester United only? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can move on to Ian then, loser. <laughs> <laughs> that has got to be the quickest quickfire round answer of all time. <laughs> the spirit of the quickfire returns. <laughs> okay. Ian. Was introduced. Right, <laughs> David De Gea. De Gea is, an, is is not a natural leader, Johnny. What he is 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 a leader um, who, you know, the the I guess it's a cliche, but the, all cliches have foundation in um, in reality, and that is he leads by example. Um, in big games, he makes. In big moments, he saves the team. He's done it again and again. Um, he is someone who is undoubtedly an inspiration to those in front of him. 
you speak to Manchester United defenders in the last five, six years, and they will tell you that De Gea um, is probably the best in Schmeichel um, that the club has had. And they feel <clears throat> both confident and safe that even if their last line of outfield defence is punctured, that De Gea has got a very good chance of making sure that the opposition don't score. So he, for me, he's definitely a leader. Duncan, Alexis Sanchez. Yeah, I think he's. I think Alexis is a is a leader on the pitch um, with his energy, um, his drive, and I think uh, he was badly missed at Brighton at the weekend. And I think um, he he was missed, and Nemanja Matic were missed, and uh, Antonio Valencia as well. And one of the problems with the Manchester United squad at present is there aren't many um, experienced leaders in that team. Um, I don't think Alexis has, has performed um, very often for Manchester United yet to, to the full level of his, of his capabilities, but I don't think that'll be too long coming. So, yeah, I'd have him down as a leader. And finally, Ian, for you, Eric Cantona. <laughs> well, um, look, Cantona is uh, and remains, and I think will always be a conundrum um, for a lot of people. You would have to say that, you know, the less seemly episodes of his career, including um, what happened uh, at Crystal Palace or indeed when he was suspended from the French national team and uh, went through each individual one of the um, French Football Federation Committee and called him something very uh, unseemly that we can't actually say on air, um, even though Duncan's already mentioned a a different word. Um, But, again... To teammates, he was absolutely a leader and an inspiration because he is a game-breaker. Cantona could do things that no one else could do. He could chip a goalkeeper from 19 yards, not celebrate except by putting his collar up. And, you know, you cannot teach, coach by that kind of personality. So when Fergie got from Leeds United for just over a million pounds, I think it was, you know, he probably made the signing of his career at Manchester United. And again, you speak to some of the guys who sort of were coming through at the time Cantona was signed, and, and by that I mean the, the sort of 92, class 92 generation. Um, I've spoken to David Beckham about him. I've spoken to the Neville brothers. Um, I've spoken to Nicky Butt, not obviously Paul Scholes because he doesn't speak until now, but... Um, all those guys will cite Canton as an absolute leader and inspiration to them. And that was confirmed by the fact that different rules, and only him, only he got different rules applied by Sir Alex Ferguson. So when he needed a day off extra training, when, when he needed to go and have a cigarette, then he was allowed to do that because Sir Alex Ferguson knew what he had. And therefore, I don't think you can deny that Eric Canton was a leader, not a loser. Okay, regular listeners will know that Duncan Castles is a massive Dundee United fan and therefore I racked my brains to come up with a player who played for both Dundee United and Manchester United for this quickfire round. Now, I can only think of one. So, Duncan, I'm going to put his name to you. Leader or loser? Ralphie Milne. Well, obviously we're going to have to reassess the Manchester United only um, rule of the quickfire round and say he was a massive leader and one of the best players in Scottish football and uh, it's just a shame what happened when he moved to Manchester United um, where he uh, we appeared to turn into uh, the Anthony Martial of the, the leader and loser round. <laughs> I, su- I suggest, Johnny, that at some point in the future we have a very our very own um, podcast in a telephone box just about Ralph Milne. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder that we are looking for a sponsor, so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. In terms of us as individuals, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. 
If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.